0: if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians one last time before we break to begin our Advent season. But don't worry, we will come back to Ephesians in the new year. Before I read this, as I've said over the past couple weeks, Ephesians breaks, in, breaks down into um, two really nice sections, the first three chapters uh, being the first section, and then the last three chapters being the second section. And the way Paul writes is he he tells us in that first section that this is what's true about you, or what are the indicatives of the Christian, right? Here's God's love for you. He's adopted you. It is, it is God's uh, desire uh, to, to unite all things under Christ. Or we are in Christ because of of what he has done, again, indicative, indicative, indicative. When we get to chapter 4, everything turns to imperatives or what, what's to do, what are you to do in light of that. And so this morning actually marks our venture into chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first six verses. Um, but this is going to be sort of a scratching the surface, if you will, for what we will come back to in uh, the new year when we pick back up with uh, the book of Ephesians. So with that in mind, let's give our attention now to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, as we hear Paul now exhort the Christians in Ephesus based on all the things that he has already mentioned um, that are true for them because of who they are in Christ. Beginning in verse verse 1, chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, for the book of Ephesians and um, all that it has taught us this fall. And so we pray that you would Continue that work, that you would open our eyes and our ears this morning to see and hear things otherwise we could not, that Christ would become more beautiful and believable to us than all the other things that bid for our heart's affection. Would you do this for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, I'll start with a question this morning. What is it that unites us? That's a general term, right? You can think about you as a family. You can think about us as a church. Think about us as a state. What unites Marylanders? Um, what about Americans? Kind of get a little bit bigger. What unites us? What unites you and the people that you belong to? It could be values, depending on what you're thinking about or what category you're, uh, you know, you're going to there. It could be you know, things like freedom. Right? As an American, it's something we value and kind of unites us. Um, as a Marylander, maybe it's Old Bay and crab cakes. Got to love that. Um, is it sharing the same last name? Right? Is, that, is that what really drives your unity? Maybe it's the same uh, tastes in music or your love for football or different other hobbies like that. What, what unites you and the people you belong to and we could say that clearly a lot of things unite us a lot of things unite us and perhaps a better question is is not just what unites us but what is actually able to keep a group of people together through both good times and bad times because let's face it, right, like the things that, that, that we look at, look to to unite us, uh, whether as a country or whether as, as a church or our state or whatever family, right, sometimes those things change for us. Uh, sometimes our political values change, right? And so what once united us because we were aligned politically, I don't know, maybe I've changed a little bit and now that no longer is able to do the work that it once did, maybe I get to the point where I don't like Old Bay. And therefore, for some people, that might just mean you are no longer, you're dead to us as, as, as Marylanders, right? But, you know, these other things, music, right? Music has the ability to transcend uh, just culture and generation, but maybe that taste changes. And so what used to unite you doesn't anymore, which is why the better question is, is what what is actually able to keep a group of people together through all seasons, And not just a group of people, a group of people who are uh, different culturally, different ethnically, age, um, socioeconomic status, right? To keep a group like that together. Now that's different. What is it that's able to keep that group, as different as it is, also together in the midst of conflict? in the midst of things like growing impatience with one another, in the midst of normal challenges that creep in over time, is that particular thread that ties them all together, is that strong enough, is it big enough to transcend everything else in order to maintain the unity which the group has? Well, whatever that is, whatever that one thing is, One thing is true is that it has to be what that group treasures the most. It has to be what that group treasures the most above all things. And this is where Paul pivots. He's he's essentially talked to them about what is the treasure. And now he's saying, because this is your treasure... This is what's going to be the motivation for you, what's going to be the power for you, what's going to allow you uh, to maintain the unity that you have in him. And one of the ways that he exhorts the Ephesians that we'll see is by getting them to see the value in what they have actually received, which is actually done sort of a rhetorical question. It's not in the text, but as we go through this, we'll see that that, that what determines the level of maintaining this unity that he calls the church to is is based upon the value of what they think they have received, which what what is their treasure? And what is it that they've received? What has the church in Ephesus received? They have received Christ. And to the degree that he is their treasure is the degree to which they will as he exhorts them to maintain the unity that they have. And I would say the same thing is true here. Right? We may be a group of people that, that find ourselves united because we have this value system or because we like this type of seasoning on our chips or whatever. But when all that, co- you know, when all that goes away, what's our treasure? And while that is a rhetorical question, I would love for all of us to yell out, Christ, <laughs> right? That is our treasure as the church. And sometimes we forget that and we need to be called back to it. That's what Paul does. This is the treasure. And because it's a treasure, this has the power and the ability to unite and to maintain the unity that Christ has already given them. But again, it comes back to the value you attach to what it is you think that you have received. And this is what he exhorts the Ephesians to do. I want to look at two things. It's kind of one, again, this is sort of a primer, but as it it pertains to unity, I want us to look at the tools that Paul lays out to maintain this unity. And then I want us to see the testimony that makes for unity. And it's because the church has received Christ that we must, that he must, sorry, be the treasure that unites them above all other things in this world. That's what his aim is. So let's look at this. The tools to maintain this unity because Christ is their treasure. And then the testimony that makes for unity because Christ is their treasure. So that first one, the tools to maintain unity. And again, this is going to be the heavier or the longer point. So don't get too worried when you look at your watches. Um, As you notice in this section, what we've been doing is trying our best to kind of go through sentence for sentence here and pointing out some of the major things. And I'll do the same here. Um, Paul begins this section with therefore, and as we're reading, as readers, right, we, we should know that this is sort of one of those signposts that say he is about to transition, but what this word therefore means is that it implies all that he has said before is now coming with him, and here are the implications of what he has already said. In other words, we have dealt with the doctrinal, if you want to think about it like that. Paul has dealt with the theology and the doctrine, right now it's time for the practical application of those doctrines, of those truths. It is for a father and a mother, right, to sit down and look at their child and say to them over and over, you are loved, right? We love you. You have our name. You are safe. You are more valuable than you could ever imagine. Therefore, therefore, live and walk in light of this reality. Let your life reflect the doctrines of our love to you. And that's what Paul says. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge, urge, is emphatic. It's, it's not a suggestion. It's like you must do this. Urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. What does Paul mean by walking here? Um, this will be a, a, a term that we carry with us for the rest of this book. But to walk here is to Progress. It's to progress. It is the step-by-step process throughout one's life that Paul is speaking of. He is not saying, okay, uh, you have until next Sunday to figure all this out and to get your lives in order and to shape up and fly right, as we sometimes say. He's not saying that. No, walk worthy or go on living in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of your salvation, worthy of of your adoption, that you have what received. And this is something that will continue on for the rest of your life. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, Our lives are to give practical expression and visible illustration to the power and reality of God's grace in us. That's our walk. That's what Paul means. What is to be noted is how Paul isn't just, again, suggesting that the Ephesian Christians do this. He is urging them. It is emphatic. They must do this. There is no other way. It is imperative. Now, this is what's important as we go back to how the book is laid out. It's imperative, what, not to their salvation, right? This is where we sometimes mess up. We read read statements like this and we think, okay, if we don't do this, then we will lose our salvation. That's not Paul's thinking. What is his thinking? It's because you have this salvation, this is what you do, That's the grammar of the gospel. You be first, then you do. If you don't live out of this being, the doing will never connect. And and more importantly, it will not be a reflection that people around you look at and say, oh, wow, there's something new and different about this person. Because it won't be Christ you are reflecting. It won't be his gospel. It won't be his message. It'll be something else. It is imperative, again, not to their salvation but it is imperative in light of who they are. Just as, again, a father or mother would tell their child, you bear the name more. That may not mean anything to you as a four-year-old or a five-year-old at this time, but this is what it means if we live in light of that. Um, This salvation, as I said, for them is already secure. So this mission then is what it becomes, uh, or, or what this imperative becomes is the mission for the church to reflect gospel truths or realities in the way that they live. Um, it is a, a plant rooted in fertile soil that produces a fruit. The Ephesians we've already have read in, in chapter three, what they are, what rooted and established, rooted and grounded what in love, which is in Christ. That's where they are. And because of that, this is, this is what, what Paul urges them to continue to do. To live out of this reality, um, he calls this. Um, well, he doesn't call it this, but as he as he is, as he moves into what we're about to look at, which 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 is the, the which are the tools uh, for maintaining this unity. This is really like his. This is really his description of, of what it looks like to live as a new self, or what we might we might call a new humanity. Which is another major theme here, too. As the church takes on this calling, they become this new humanity in, uh, in Christ, but for the world. All right? So let's get to that point, right? What, is, what does this look like for Paul? How will we walk if this is what he is urging them to do? And he lays this out in verse 2. If you look at it, we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with what? Humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. In other words, these, friends, are the tools to maintain unity for Paul. Now, at first, listen, you might have expected Paul to say something more radical, maybe just something different altogether, right? A new humanity, and what they're supposed to do to maintain this is humility, patience, Right? That doesn't sound too countercultural. And in our day, it wouldn't be. But in, in his day, it, it absolutely would. We've got to recognize that in Paul's day, these words uh, were countercultural. Right? Words like humility and patience and gentleness, these were words that were um, all but despised in this culture. They were not used in, in, in contexts of approval. Or admiration. You wouldn't say to somebody, I, I, I'm aspiring to be a humble person. You would either get laughed at, um, and, and nobody would be interested in wanting to hang out with you, essentially, as far as the culture is concerned. Right? These, these are not things we would aspire to. You would not say, I long to be gentle. Right? That's just another term in this day and age for, for weakness, uh, for not, not being strong and, and, and taking what is yours, demanding that type of respect, out of that bravery. No, instead, it's not until Jesus comes that true humility, for example, is recognized and valued. It's not until Jesus comes and the spread of Christianity over the past 2,000 plus years where words like humility and gentleness, right, become what valued. So if that's something that you aspire to in a spouse or friend or even individually, you you have no one to thank but Christianity, essentially. Let's put it that way. Um, These words were not looked at as something to be valued. Jesus made them valuable. Right? But just because these characteristics are virtues today doesn't mean culture practices them. And it certainly doesn't mean that Christians practice them. In fact, the world today doesn't really possess the tools, as we'll see, to practice humility, to practice gentleness or patience that leads to bearing with one another in love in the way that the church does. Why? Because the world doesn't have Christ. And that may sound funny to your ears this morning, but this is what Paul is trying to urge these Ephesians to recognize, what they have, what they have received It's not saying that that, that Christ isn't offered to the world, but who does Christ belong to or who belongs to Christ? It's the church. In other words, you won't be patient with someone to to the degree that they need patience if you don't recognize your need for Jesus and thus how patient he has already been with you. That's grace. You won't have the motivation to be truly humble until you see what your Savior gave up, which is himself and all of his glory to have you. Those tools belong to the church. They are tools that that are strong enough, right, that, that are powerful enough, right, to maintain the unity that Paul is urging them to pursue. Right, but their power is only met, again, if Christ is what? Their treasure, if Christ is the treasure of the church, of the Christians who make up the church, anyone can read the teachings of Jesus, and many do, and look at him as a, as a, as a good uh, prophet, as a good teacher, and try to take on and mimic these things. But if Christ is not their treasure, which means he's not their savior, he's not, he's not the, the, the gift of all gifts that they have received, then something else is, and that is what will dictate the degree of of their walk, right? So what are these tools with our time here? First, humility, right? Humility, literally meaning lowly-minded, lowly-minded. C.S. Lewis still has, I think, one of the best definitions of humility. He says this in Mere Christianity. He writes, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. Probably all of you think about him Probably all that you'll think about him is that he seemed, to, seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you, do, if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. In other words, humility to Lewis is not self-deprecation, which sometimes it can be masked as. It's not self-deprecation. It's not announcing to the world, I am worthless, right? I'm the worst. That's not humility. That's false humility, actually, right? It's not thinking less of yourself, right? It's simply thinking of yourself less. And that's Lewis's point. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking more of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In contrast, it is a... You know, it it is a curiosity about others. Are you curious then? Do you ask questions uh, to others about themselves? Or are you too caught up with yourself, with your own issues, or even your own fears and insecurities? Do you engage others, not because you want them to like you, but because, well, one, they're image bearers and they're interesting. But that mainly because you're so secure in the wonderful salvation that God has given you in Christ, and because that's your treasure. That's what you value the most. Other people's opinions of you don't really matter. You see how that begins to play out as they're rooted in Christ. They're able to move into the world with humility, not thinking of themselves more, not thinking of themselves less, but, not, but, but, thinking, but, but thinking about themselves Less. I, mess, mess, I messed that up. <laughs> Sorry. Um, simply thinking of themselves less. Tim Keller calls this the blessed rest of self-forgetfulness. That's what humility looks like. It's not putting on something. As he says, you're not, not even aware of being humble in this moment. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2-3 to three says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Well, how is that going to happen, right? It comes back to your treasure, right? I care more about what this person thinks of me, what this person has said, which has been the gospel this whole time for Paul. This is your identity. This is what you're in. You're in Christ, And the value and the weight of that is so much more that it supersedes, right, the opinions of others and and, and who and what you're trying to prove to others. That it allows you to take on humility in a way that nobody else can. This is why these tools that are given to the church allow the church to be something that the world cannot The opposite of humility, we might say, is arrogance, just to contrast that a bit, right? It's not counting others more important. How do you count others more significant than yourselves? How, how do you not think less of yourselves? We just said, start, thinking of your, start, start, start remembering and focusing on your treasure. As Paul told us back in chapter 2, 11, remember your story. Remember where you came. You were dead until God made you alive with Christ but remember how much you are what loved to. You have the riches of God in Christ. Jesus secured those riches for you. What he says about you matters more than what anyone else says about you. These are the implications of this doctrine. All right. time. That's humility. This is the first tool that, maintain, to main, that maintains unity. Let's look at the second one here briefly though. We'll be coming back to all of these throughout this book. Gentleness, right? And this is sort of paired with humility, but, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a little different. Again, gentleness was something that was seen as, as weakness in this day and age, often in the context of conflict, and it was not valued, right? Conflict was dealt with sort of in a might makes right type of way. Uh, that's where... Um, Respect and, and um, valor came from, um, but, but gentleness is a mark of the truly strong, as John Stott writes, whose strength is what under control. And this is why, this is why it's one of these tools, right? Maybe it's physical strength for you, like all of us are given different um, measures of strength, but also you know, maybe it's your personality. How are you going to steward that? Are you just going to continue to get your way by beating people up, essentially, is what gentleness is asking. Or are you going to be somebody that's, that's ruled and controlled by something else, which again comes back to our treasure. Are you going to be able, right, to steward your strength and by virtue have it under control for the sake of others? That is gentleness. That is a tool that Paul gives uh, or says is, is, is what will maintain unity. Um, This combination of humility and gentleness is how Christ described himself in Matthew 11. You might remember beginning in verse 28, come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I know many of you are aware that Dan Ortland wrote a book titled Gentle and Lowly. And I I believe you all were doing a Sunday school class on that when I was interviewing here. Um, Just commend that book to you. If you haven't read it, it is food for your soul to get into the idea of what it means for Jesus to, to embody and be these things. Okay, but where does this gentleness come from in our lives as we come back to the text? Where does it come from, right? We come back to Christ, we come back to what we value. What have we received? What is that treasure, right? See, gentleness says two things about us. It says, I don't have anything to prove, one. And two, right, I know how I've been dealt with. Right? When we embody gentleness in this world, when we, when we deal with others gently, right, we, we are saying, I don't have anything to prove to you. There's no ladder I'm trying to climb. You're not just sort of a a cog in this wheel or this machine that's getting me what I want. I have nothing to prove because, again, I have it all already in Christ. But two, I know my own story. I know how I've been dealt with. Why do Christians have nothing to prove to one another or their neighbors? It's because they share the same story. This is the implication for Paul. They are all saved by grace. How many times can he say it? That no one should boast. In other words, there is a mutuality among one another that says, I don't have to approve anything to you. I know who I am in Christ, but I know who you are in Christ, which 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 makes you just as valuable. The same time as i remember my story my rebellion my sin what i deserved i remember how god dealt with me right how merciful he was to me and in his forgiveness and his adoption and then his justice towards me he was what he was gentle this is how the church will take on this tool this posture that maintains unity so the first one humility the second one gentleness uh, lastly, Paul gives patience here. Patience is uh, defined as long-suffering towards aggravating people. It's my favorite definition. Long-suffering towards aggravating people. And I, I do want to uh, say this before I move forward. Uh, I recognize, and I'm not making little, uh, that, there are, that, that there are hard relationships in the church. And there are real hurts and there are r- real wounds. So before I even go any further, I, it, it's it's not that Paul is not saying that, that that humility and gentleness and patience, as we get here in a second, right? That should take care of all the things that that have been done to you, and it needs to be said that that there are real hurts and there are real ways that people have been affected by one another in the church, and that has different situa- That's a different situation to deal with. This is not saying those no longer matter. And so while we can deal with those um, another day, what Paul is is putting out there is like, this is how we maintain this unity. This is what we strive for. This This is what we put on, as it were, for the world to see, because this is what it looks like to walk worthy of our calling. So... I hope that, hope that landed in the right place, meaning that as you hear some of this stuff, this doesn't mean that you should just forget about or ignore, or, or maybe that the things that have happened to you have, have caused you to move churches before. But having said that, patience being, being one that Paul labors on uh, in many of his letters, it is long-suffering towards aggravating people. Now, as you may have already noticed, all three of these, humility, gentleness, and patience, right, they are, they, they are not characteristics that, that Christians take on as badges for themselves, right? Nobody's getting a gold star around here for this. Rather, they are characteristics primarily for what? Dealing with conflict. I want you to think about that for a second. They are characteristics primarily for dealing with conflict. They are tools for bearing with one another in love and the fact that paul says i urge you to maintain this unity implies that he knows what it's going to be difficult people are going to hurt you and not just anybody but the people who are supposed you're supposed to be the most united to the people who share the same story Those are the ones that Paul already recognizes they are going to hurt you and possibly even hurt you the most. It's why it's emphatic that he urges us to maintain this. It's going to take work. And even in our efforts, right, things don't always work out the way that they are supposed to. But I just wanted to draw your attention to that. The assumption here is that Paul recognizes and knows he knows a little bit about the church, he knows a little bit about what, it, what it's like to bring all of these different groups of people, which by the way, doesn't happen in any other institution in the world. Name it, it doesn't exist. You can send me an email. Nothing unites across all of the categories that I mentioned earlier, like the church. And that's because of Christ. But even still, even the miracle that that is, Paul knows that there are going to be times that people hurt you and patience Uh, As we talk about it, it it is in many ways the chief tool that the church has to bear with one another in love. Patience says, I see you as being in process. I see you as being in process, right? Because what? I'm in process, right? We start to, 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 to see others in the way that we want to be seen. And because I'm in process, I see you in process, right, Alex, in the same care and long-suffering to you that I would want and that others have shown me. That's patience. All of us are still in process. I'm in process, right? Your officers are in process, right? Everybody in here and viewing, we are all in process because that is the work of sanctification in our life. Ephesians that Paul is writing to, right, they are in process. Paul is in process. And what is that? What is that process? They are all still growing and maturing, still being refined by the Spirit who now dwells in them. In other words, the home renovation that we spoke of last week, it is not complete. It is in process. And it's going to be in process until they go to be with Jesus or until he returns, and because that's true, patience must be the tool, along with humility and gentleness, that is used to maintain unity in the church. Paul isn't just throwing sort of three virtues out there and thinking this this might do it. He knows. He knows. And the way that Christians do this, the way that this happens in the church, is by beginning to say about one another, right, the same spirit that I know is at work in me, that I trust is at work in me, that I might even talk about to others that not working in me, I begin to trust that, that that same spirit is at work in you. Even the chief of aggravators. And that's, do you know how hard that is? Yes, you know how hard that is. It is hard to believe that about other people. It is hard to look at those who have hurt you and say, I'm gonna believe the best about you. I'm gonna trust that the spirit that I know is working in me is actually working in you too. That's what patience does. And that's why it is Paul's tool for unity. As I said, what does this begin to look like? It begins, uh, I think, first and foremost, uh, for a body of people, before there's ever any accusation about something, before there's ever sort of that that. Uh, you know, just thinking the worst is actually the practice of, of always giving one another the benefit of the doubt. I've got 16 years in ministry in the church. It's still not enough to make this statement have the weight that I want it to have. But there's nothing that destroys Unity. And nothing that Satan uses more than the ability to get us spinning in our minds, thinking what? The worst about one another. And and this shows itself in gossip. This is why gossip is talked about one of the the main things Paul talks about, and the scripture talks about. Instead of Matthew 18-ing one another, instead of going to them, which is hard. It's all hard, guys. Nothing's easy here. I mean, our Savior died. (laughs) That's how hard getting you and getting us together is. Let's just just set that as the expectation here. You are going to die in so many different ways for this to come about. This is the home renovation. But the ability that the church has in order to maintain this unity is directly correlated to the ability to be patient with one another that looks like believing the best in each other going to them bearing in love this unity that we have i'm long in time here already again this is sort of a scratching the surface sermon for where we're headed i can't say enough about these things and paul can't say enough about these things humility gentleness patience right these are the tools but let me come back to another metaphor that we've been using what happens when we when we use these tools? What are these tools? Right, they, they are the notes that the church plays. And when those notes are played, right, people hear the gospel. They hear about the one who embodied humility, who came and died for us, right? Who left glory to come be a human being. Right? Who didn't consider Uh, Himself, uh, you know, he didn't consider, right, his on parness with God to be something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself like one of us. That's the note that gets played, right? The gentleness that we see of a God who is all powerful, all knowing, who deserves, right, righteousness, who deserves worship perfectly, who has every right to destroy everything because he created it and because it doesn't. It uh, doesn't live according to his justice, doesn't deal with us that way. He deals with us in gentleness, what is despised in this culture, in this day and age. And when you play that note, that's what people hear. That's what people see. Patience. There's nobody in this world, even your spouse if you're married, that has been more patient with you than Jesus Christ. And if nothing else, it's looking at him and looking at his table that he has has made for you to come and dine with him and seeing, wow, if you have been this patient with me and will continue to be this patient with me, then maybe, just maybe, there's something in me that can grow into that patience as well with one another. That's the gospel note. And as we start living that out as a church, as we start working to maintain that unity by using these tools, we play a tune that people can't help but look at and say, what is that? I want that. Because let me tell you what's not going on in the world today, right? It's not the unity that people want. I don't think I have to argue with you that we are divided as a culture, And while there is another conversation for another day about denominations, that's not all bad. There's a unity that that, that is bigger than the the, the smaller things that that put us in places, right, that don't bind our conscience, right? We did our confession of faith this morning because that is what truly unites us, right? That's across denominational lines. My point is, to go back to the last apologetic that Francis Schaeffer wrote, is that we are Paul implores us to play these notes, not just because of who we are, but because it is what will be the music of the gospel to those who are watching us. And what that music tells that world is it doesn't tell us about us, it doesn't preach us, it preaches Christ, which is what? Our treasure. The degree to which that happens is the degree to which you value what you have received. It's gonna end with this story. Um, some of y'all are, I'm sure you're familiar with the movie A Christmas Story. Now, real quick, I know it's not Thanksgiving yet. Um, this is just an illustration that happens to have Christmas in it. This is not a Christmas illustration, okay? At the same time, I realize we're breaking here in Ephesians, and I want you to carry Ephesians with you on into Advent and through Christmas and into the new year. And because it plays 24-7 on TBS the the day of Christmas, maybe you'll catch it, and maybe you'll remember this. We'll see, right? But it it has everything to do with, with knowing the value of what we have received. And one of the most iconic uh, scenes in this movie is when Ralphie, the nine-year-old, uh, the, both Ralphie and his brother Randy come downstairs for Christmas It's Christmas Day, and they're looking at all the presents in the tree, and they go in there and they start tearing it up as as nine and seven-year-olds do, and and, and then Ralphie gets to Aunt Clara's uh, gift, and what's Aunt Clara's gift? Gift? It's the onesie, the bunny pajama set. It's pink. Um, I, I love the line that he quotes there. He says uh, that that Aunt Clara always labored under the de- delusion. Uh, that he was not only perpetually four years old, but also a girl. And as he's talking about this, he's holding up the slippers and the, and the ears. And, of course, his dad is looking at this like, this is not good. And then the mom, though, just thinks it's the best thing ever and, and gets him to says, you got to go up and try this on. And Of course, he goes and he tries it on, and he comes back down. And you know the scene, right? Everything about him tells you what he thinks is the value and worth of this gift. He, he, he wants nothing more than to... Take it off, set fire to it, and never see it again. And I guess it doesn't help when your dad says that you look like a pink nightmare. Right? Most of the attention is put on Ralphie here, right? He really is only happy, right, when we know that he gets what he wants, which is his Red Rider BB gun. But I'm not interested in Ralphie at this point. I'm not actually interested in, in, in him getting that BB gun because, again, he is only happy when he gets what he wants, and we see where that leads him. I want to leave you with, with Randy. Um, th- this, is, this is where the camera needs to focus, because where's Randy at this point uh, in the story as, 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 things, as Christmas is coming to a close? Randy is, is, for lack of a better phrase, right, he is passed out, drunk on all things Christmas, laying asleep in the middle of the floor under the tree. And in his, har- in his arms, he has what he has received, which I think is actually a Zeppelin, And he is just asleep, content. Everything in the world is right with Randy. (laughs) He is as content as any seven-year-old can be. And though this will only hold his attention for a moment, he is holding in his arms what matters most to him. And it completely, friends, dictates his entire demeanor, his posture, his behavior. There's no doubt that it is his treasure. Everything comes down to what you think you have received. Everything comes down to the value of what you have received. Is it treasure to you? And is that Christ for you? Would Jesus always be what the church holds in her arms, as it were, right? In order to what? To walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We pray that you would, as we take a break from it, that you would allow it to do the work of growing in our hearts not just what we have read this morning, but this whole book. But I pray specifically for us as a church as we begin to sort of um, turn the corner on the implications of the gospel and what you call your church to be, which is, one, because of who we are in Christ, because of, of, of his redemption for us. That, that it would be because of the value we, we, we put on that gift, as it were he is our true treasure, treasure, that this would be what motivates and sends us into the world uh, to maintain the unity that we have in you, to reflect to the world the gospel message of what Christ has come to do for sinners like us. Would you do that for Wallace? Would you do that for your church uh, throughout Maryland and in this country and throughout this world? That when the, when the world does look at your bride, They don't see the things that we treasure uh, like politics or money or any other thing. What they see is us holding fast to Christ. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen.